This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Mike Brown, author, nerd, and host of the Dark Patine podcast. Join me and Morgan Knudsen, author, paranormal researcher, and host of the TV shows Paranormal 911 and Haunted Hospitals, as we take you on a journey for the curious about the unseen, the mysterious, and the incredible things happening in the world about us. Welcome to Supernatural Circumstances. In this episode, Morgan refers to the inspirational story of the father of parapsychology, J.B. Joseph Banks Rhine. Rhine, who rejected faith early on in favor of a hard scientific education, obtained a Ph.D. in botany. He was eventually drawn to the paranormal after learning of a number of cases of what he perceived as legitimate psychic occurrences. His intuition began to nag at him. Perhaps his earlier closed-minded thinking was off-base. Dr. Ryan decided to put his scientific know-how to work, and ignoring derision from others with fixed ideas about what was possible, dove headlong into studying things paranormal. Ryan helped to establish the parapsychology laboratory at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. There, he and his growing team began researching such phenomena as mental telepathy, precognition, psychokinesis, and clairvoyance, performing more than 90,000 related experiments with numerous human subjects. Dr. Rhine has been credited with coining the now well-known term extrasensory perception, or ESP. Two books, Extrasensory Perception in 1934 and New Frontiers of the Mind in 1937, catapulted him into the forefront of the growing field of psychical research. After leaving Duke in 1965, Ryan formed his own research center. At that time, it was called the Foundation for Research on the Nature of Man, but it is today known as the still very active Ryan Research Center. That same year, Dr. Ryan and his longtime colleague, the psychologist William McDougall, co-founded the Journal of Parapsychology and authored other important works in the field. Ryan died at his home in Hillsborough, North Carolina, on February 20, 1980. Well, what led Ryan, a hardcore scientist and veteran of World War I, to becoming one of the most respected and innovative figures in the field of parapsychology? He listened to his intuition and followed that up with action. There is something to listening to our intuition when it comes to obtaining success or helping to move the world forward in any way. Some of the greatest minds claim it is indispensable. Father of quantum physics, Albert Einstein said, quote, Invention occurs as a constructive act. The really valuable factor is intuition. End quote. Eminent psychiatrist and modern mystic Carl Gustav Jung pointed out that just because intuition does not hold up to current scientific study does not mean it's worthless nor should it be ignored. He wrote, This term, intuition, does not denote something contrary to reason. 
but something outside the province of reason, end quote. People often ask me how I've succeeded. The steps are fairly simple, but not an easy thing to pull off. I have found success through becoming more honest with myself, open-minded enough to try new things, and having enough faith to be willing to take a few risks and do the next thing that's in front of me. I'm still learning a lot. These are things that I have to practice. I meditate daily, asking the universe to guide my thoughts, and I'm trying to cultivate my relationship with that still small voice that's inside me, pushing me toward my deepest desires. Now that may sound hokey and a bit woo-woo to you, but until I surrendered some of my own biases and became a little more willing to believe, I was getting nowhere. Take that for what you will. Anyway, enough from me. Next up, we hear from Morgan with more on this topic, and later we speak with Mark Bocuzzi of both the Winbridge Institute and the Winbridge Research Center. But first, here's Morgan. Instinct and faith are actually intertwined, and both function best when we don't know the details. Often, when we are put in situations to destabilize us, those are the situations where the most creativity, faith, and instinct kick in. Sometimes knowing too much can throw us off balance because when we know a lot, our emotional filters kick in. The stories we tell ourselves begin to get in the way and intellect begins to cloud what would otherwise be guidance. If you know everything, there would never be room for instinct, faith, innovation, or discovery. Creativity usually comes in uncertainty, and creativity usually begins with a pinch of instinct. Sometimes you have to shut down your vision in order to have some instinct. Shut down your outer vision, and you might just have some inner vision. In parapsychology, remote viewing experiments are where we see the perfect example of this lesson in action. Remote viewing is an experimental form of ESP, or extrasensory perception, that emerged in the late 1960s, in which an individual attempts in a meditative state to visualize the topography of a distant scene or details of an image he or she is not physically privy to. This is a very literal example, but the results have been incredible, even playing a role in the discovery and arrest of criminals such as Saddam Hussein. Perhaps the Science Encyclopedia defines it best, as remote viewing is the term of art for a series of non-local consciousness formalized protocols in which an individual is asked to provide detailed information about a person, place, object, or event, which information they should not be able to know by reason of their being, shielded from it by time, space, or both. The research revealed that remote viewers who were defined as more right brain, something many associate with artists and emotional thinkers, did better than those defined as left brain, the more technical or analytical thinkers. Now, this is interesting because, as I stated before, thinking can get in our way. When we are too analytical and allow our thinking to overtake our inner calm, it can blur our connection to that innate ability to hear that deeper part of ourselves that doesn't lean on analytics or reasoning. Women and men did equally well in the research. Often, women are thought of as more intuitive or more connected because we have an image of intuition being a female trait. But in remote viewing, the ability to receive images, messages, and follow their instinct on what they might perceive is equal. 
Interestingly, introverts and extroverts develop different strategies for opening to the process of connecting with non-local images and the phenomenon, and many found that having a ritual of some sort helped with the process. Rituals are often key in slowing down our thinking mind and bringing us into the moment. They empower and connect us. Rituals, like meditation and even the act of prayer, can be extremely influential in bringing us back in touch with our inner self, as well as setting up our expectations for how the next event or life segment will play out in our life. When we can slow down negative thinking, we can align with far more positive expectations and intentions, which can change the probability of events that we experience. To illustrate this, the relationship between the monitor and the viewer made a difference, and both affected session outcome. This is such a great example of how our connections to others and how we are feeling can not only shift our experiences, but change our ability to tap into that inner connection. A poor relationship or circumstance, if we aren't mindful of our emotions and allow that negativity to seep in, can alter our chances of perceiving the instinct and guidance we are built to receive. Keep in mind, space and time were not limitations here, so no level of blindness had any effect. This wasn't an experimentation problem. Often the labs used triple-blind studies as the preferable method of research, if the viewers were correct in what they received, and all other avenues to the information had been blocked, they knew the data was genuinely non-local and could be treated as a positive result. But mood, expectations, relationships, and environment all played a part in whether or not the viewer could land some home runs. And that tells us a lot about what it takes for us to keep those receptors open. Thankfully, we don't need a lab and triple-blind studies to decide whether or not that guidance and instinct is the real deal, but it can sure help to understand what we're really capable of. Remote viewing is such a stunning example of instinct calling us higher and having faith that what is being received may be something significant and important, that there is simply more to be learned from the images that people are receiving in this meditative state. And it's not simply a hallucination or imagination. Think about the first individuals who dared to consider that the images in their mind weren't coincidence and that they could receive pictures from people in another room or locations in a far-off land. How crazy do you think they sounded to the average logical person up the street? Throughout history, there have been plenty of cases of prophets and priests and oracles who have claimed to be able to do this. But as time went on, this was considered less and less until now there is no oracle or visionary who accompanies the president, prime minister, or king. It would be considered not only weird, but a practice not based in modern judgment. When all of the medical modern sciences said the opposite, individuals like J.B. Ryan in 1930, decided to follow his instinct and pursue it. At the time, parapsychology was still very much a fringe science, and anyone involved was risking their academic reputation. Nonetheless, Joseph Banks Ryan is considered to be the founder of modern parapsychology. An American botanist turned psychologist, he was the first to systematically apply experimental investigations in the field of psychical research at Duke University. 
how does a botanist and someone who gave up a career in ministry because of his scientific beliefs end up the father of parapsychology as we know it? After a stint of serving in the Army during World War I, Ryan came home to Ohio, got married, and decided he wanted a career change. And he settled on plans. He even went as far as to get a PhD in botany and believed that he had found his niche. In 1922, all of that changed after hearing one lecture. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was giving a lecture on spiritualism and non-physical energy, and the list of distinguished scientists about whom he spoke deeply impressed Joseph. Now remember, this was a man who had questioned his spiritual beliefs in order to pursue a career in what the rest of the world called science. But something was stirred in him that day. It was further incited by a story from a Chicago professor that caught his attention. He told about a neighbor who had a vision of his brother's suicide, described in detail and verified by several witnesses. Fascinated, he wanted to know more, but the professor seemed to have absolutely no interest in asking why or how this clairvoyance occurred. Someone with little belief in any such thing. It would have been easy for Joseph to dismiss both the lecture and the professor's story, but something within him called him further. His instinct told him there was more. This was dangerous territory for someone who worked at a university like West Virginia. This wasn't highly funded subject matter, and nor was it respected, but his instinct was to pursue it. Something more called him. He later said, My interest in psychic research had grown out of my desire, common to thousands of people. I think to find a satisfactory philosophy of life one that could be regarded as scientifically sound and yet could answer some of the urgent questions regarding the nature of man and his place in the natural world. This was a far cry from a man who wanted to pursue a career in plants. In 1926, Ryan gave up his job teaching about plant physiology at West Virginia University entirely and decided to follow his instinct. For someone who questioned any idea of religious faith, he had definitely found a new kind. He began training in psychology and philosophy at Harvard in preparation for a career in psychical research. Not many people have the courage to leave their menial job, let alone a teaching position, at an accredited university for a position that, at the time, didn't even exist. He had no idea if he would ever see a dime from his new endeavor. But that's where faith kicks in. You can't take a leap of faith off the diving board of logic. Most people would have thought he was insane. He had no proof of anything he was studying and no job to go to. Even today, we are taught to follow a certain order of life and that any form of uncertainty could land us in a big pot of trouble, especially in the hiring department. Sometimes, however, facts need to catch up to the leap. My great-great-grandfather, Albert Durant Watson, was in the same position in the early 1900s. As a respected and revered physician, poet, and astronomer, he put his career on the line to tackle parapsychology as well. His career was threatened, he was laughed at, and he was publicly ridiculed. However, the instinct and faith was thicker than the naysayers. 
Both these men went on to change the face of parapsychology forever, with J.B. Rhine advancing the study of extrasensory perception and founding the Rhine Research Institute. The parapsychology laboratory records at Rubinstein Library at Duke University contain thousands of letters that he wrote during his lifetime. His correspondence with great minds such as Carl Jung, Upton Sinclair, Charlie Chaplin, and Julian Huxley, as well as his books and papers, which are studied to this day. Albert Durant Watson involved himself with the Society of Psychical Research of Canada, the first organization of its time in Canada, which pioneered the study of the paranormal in the country, and he soon became president. Having people like Watson and Ryan following their instinct, then having the faith to pursue it, even when there was no evidence, is a crucial reminder of the importance of listening to that inner guidance, and they are far from alone. Instinct and faith took a career-driven war vet from botanist to one of the most recognized names in science. It took a renowned physician and author to an enlightenment and sense of purpose that he never thought possible, and then he changed the minds of Canadians. I remember being in school and knowing that I would not have a regular job. School infuriated me because I knew that nothing I was learning had anything to do with my calling. My instinct, even at an early age, was spot on. In school, because it is one of the few situations in life where we are lumped together with people who are likely not on our wavelength, I was hard-pressed to find anyone who I felt truly connected with. It is likely we won't have anything to do with the people in math class ever again. And I would bet 10 bucks you don't remember most of your teacher's names or the kid who copied your science homework. I had a deep knowing, possibly the same as my great-great-grandfather's, that I was meant for something more. When I was fortunate enough to connect with my future business partner, Stephanie Wirtz, in junior high, I knew immediately this was the right direction. I had no plans for secondary education, although every adult I spoke to told me it was the only way I would ever see any sort of success at all. My instinct told me different. Now, let me be clear. This wasn't wishful thinking or a lazy kid talking. Even at a young age, I was a driven writer and performer and spent most of my personal time with my nose buried in paranormal research. I didn't even attend my own prom as I spent it writing a novel I had been composing that year. But what drove me in that direction was a deep knowledge, an inner knowing that this was my calling and the faith to believe that I would get there. I had no roadmap. Parapsychology isn't even a recognized discipline in Canada, so there are no teaching jobs or PhDs to earn. My instinct was simple. If I keep moving in this direction, the door will open somewhere. And boy, did it ever. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a 9-to-5 job. There's nothing wrong with working at the local grocery store or bookshop. There is no set plan for anyone, and we all find our joy in doing different things. But let me tell you, when you go against your instinct and your calling is to be elsewhere, you can kill yourself by not hearing and validating that inner knowing. And here's the rub most don't consider. You also rob others of your gifts. Like J.B. Rhine, he had no idea he was about to quit his study of plants and become one of the greatest minds in parapsychology. He could have easily ignored that instinct to pursue what it was that really made him lie awake at night and wonder 
But what a loss it would have been to all of us who rely on his work as the basis for so many of our theories, ideas, and practices now. He could have easily pursued his job as a botany professor and would likely have been extremely successful at it. But nothing got him going like Psy Research, and his instinct told him to move on it. Faith played a huge role for me as well, although I never considered it faith at the time. Instinct has this magical way of making faith look like the next logical step. It feels so natural and so certain that sometimes it doesn't feel like faith at all. Anyone outside looking in, however, might think you're finally going to need that padded truck, and the brazen ones may just tell you so. Faith is the art of believing the unseen is already available to us, and while most people would consider that a ridiculous notion, the truth is that quantum physics would agree that it is not only rational, but extremely probable. In fact, it would argue, you can't have what you can't see in your mind's eye first. In my first book, Teaching the Living from Heartbreak to Happiness in a Haunted Home, I write an entire chapter on probability and how every potential is already in existence, and that emotionally lining up with those potentials puts you on the same frequency of the event you are seeking, causing it to manifest in its essence. You don't have to see it to know it, but when you're not the one in the driver's seat with the instinct and intuition, others who aren't looking in your range might see your instinct as something that seems like wishful thinking. A good rule of thumb is this. Trailblazers move by instinct. I always find it really interesting that even though we keep animals in cages and say they are tame, we still have to lock the cage. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever asked yourself why? It's because they have the instinct to move towards freedom. It's not in their comfort zone because they may have spent their entire lives in the cage but let me tell you, animals will exchange safety for freedom almost every time. Instinctually, they know something else is out there. And the reason so many of us are angry today is because we limit ourselves when our instinct tells us, I belong elsewhere. We stay in a job we don't like, in a relationship we hate, or doing something we just don't want to do because we have no background or logical reasoning around how we can get from where we are to what we instinctually know. And without that element of faith, you can talk yourself right out of your instinct and make yourself miserable as sin. Just in the same way people can talk themselves into having no ability to remote view or have a paranormal experience by saying, this isn't real, we can do the same thing with our own intuition around things in our life. Are you working and investing from a true place? Or are you working from someone else's expectations? What are you gifted at? What are you inclined to? What are your passions? Just like J.B. Ryan's plants, if you don't know what your seed is, you can't prosper and grow and bear fruit. You could be wearing yourself out trying to change your environment when in reality, you may just need to change your mind. You can't just discover your seed and walk away. You then have to start to tend to your seed. Now, what seed you bury and nurse is up to you, because you nurse whatever seed you want to. You can nurse a seed of fear. You can nurse a seed of, I'm not enough. You can nurse a seed of, it'll never happen for me. And you can nurse a seed of, I believe this is possible because my instinct is pulling me there. 
You can pick which one you want to carry and water and dump fertilizer into. And by fertilizer, I mean the momentum of more thought. You get to pick moment by moment what you do with that instinct and that calling. How you act on it, how you feed it, how you develop it is up to you. And it's your own journey, not your mother's. Please take note. In the case of J.B. Ryan and other greats of our time, their instinct pulled them forward, but they also had a period of preparation. I cannot stress this period of time enough because so often we want everything right now. In the case of Ryan, he went to Harvard to prepare himself for his motion forward. Now, not all of us have to go to an Ivy League school, but there are things we can do now to start following our instinct in the right direction. I used to have a friend who didn't believe in the preparation period. She believed that everything she ever wanted to do, she should be able to have and do immediately. Things that would take years of practice, like becoming a musician, she felt she should have instantly. And because of that, all my musician friends who had been willing to help her forward with learning the instruments she showed interest in quit offering her help. She had spoken to me for quite some time about wanting to learn drumming and that since she was a child, it was something that she had desired to learn. What I found so interesting is that she wanted to be a drummer because drumming requires pace, and pace requires a beat, which is something you build on. Yet she was unwilling to find a rhythm and the beat of the drummers who were trying to help her, and ultimately her unwillingness to learn turned to excuses and eventually made her quit. As far as I know, though I haven't spoken to her in a good number of years, she never picked up the drums again, simply because she couldn't master it overnight. She had the instinct she could drum and that she could play, but her unwillingness to spend time in the preparation period destroyed her ability to follow her instinct. The masters of any craft will not entertain anyone who has the instinct but isn't willing to sit in the preparation period and do the work required. No theatrical performance will hire an actor who hasn't been to rehearsals but has an instinct to sing. This period is not just in regards to skill. It is also your energy and your emotional center that requires preparation. If you go into a journey believing your instinct to do or be something is the only thing you need, you'll lose whatever you're aiming for in a very short amount of time. It won't be sustainable. This is one of the main reasons so many people win the lottery and within a short amount of time, they are broke or bankrupt within a few years. In the paranormal world, I see this the most when individuals try to clear a house of paranormal phenomenon instead of changing their emotional center so they attract different results. They can stand on their head and do a dance if they want, but if they don't shift their emotional set point, they will continue to recreate the same results they felt they left behind. Instinct is a guiding post, and our work is to follow the signposts and ask ourselves what is required. You can't make a quantum leap, but the gift of instinct is the gift of recreation. You get the opportunity to recreate who you are and what you are becoming when you follow that instinct. No one starts with what they need. You have to develop what you need to sustain you as you bring yourself forward.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Next up, as promised, is our interview with Mark Bocuzzi. Mark has had some relevant experience participating in studies at the Rhine Research Center. And Mark Bocuzzi is a researcher, activist, artist, and educator working at the intersection of technology, social change, and consciousness research. His goal is to normalize psychic and afterlife-related experiences in order to create a more compassionate, sustainable, and interconnected world. He is the lead developer at the Winbridge Institute, which he co-founded in 2008 with his wife and research partner, Julie Bachel, Ph.D. He is also the executive director of the Winbridge Research Center, a public charity dedicated to easing suffering around dying, death, and what comes next through rigorous scientific research and the publication of free science-based educational materials. We'll include links in the show notes. Mark has been awarded multiple competitive research grants to support his work with mental and physical mediums technologies facilitating after-death communication experiences, psychokinesis, and precognition. He is the author of Visualizing Intention, Art Informed by Science. Mark, Julie, and their two rescue dogs, Ada Grace and Toggle, reside in Tucson, Arizona. Here's our chat. Mark, I'm thrilled to have you today because you have done so much work and I've been such a massive supporter of of Winbridge because I think it's phenomenal what you and Julie do uh, with with Psy and with so much of, of the, uh, the both the experimentation, the new thought that you're putting into this field. I think it's phenomenal. And you guys have such a unique niche in in so many ways as researchers, um, as artists, as educators. And I love how you talk about working in the the intersection of social change, technology and consciousness. Can you tell us a bit about what got you started with this? Oh, wow. Uh, so first off, wow, thank you. That was a lovely, uh, that was really nice of you to say all those wonderful things about me and my wife, uh, Dr. Julie Beichel. Um, She makes me call her that. Uh, let's see. Uh, uh, how did I get started? You know, I think I've always had a, uh, um, uh, an interest in these topics ever since I was a little kid. UFOs, Bigfoots, um, cryptids, um, uh, ghosts, hauntings, all that stuff. And um, it stuck with me uh, pretty much into my adult life. And at some point when I was considering a career, I did really think about, well, is there a future for me in parapsychology? And this would have been back in the 80s. And the answer to that question was no. And uh, because of lack of funding and uh, educational resources and things like that. So I ended up going into computer science and I studied computer science and I came out and I 
started software companies and I, I worked in the computer game software industry for a long time and did a bunch of stuff. And eventually, probably around the late 1990s, while I had maintained an interest in all of these topics, I kind of got fascinated. I was living in California and I was kind of fascinated with all these various haunted locations that uh, California is known for. And I was like, oh, I wonder if I could go visit them and see what that's like. So I started getting involved with organizations or learning about quote unquote ghost hunting, which I know is kind of a, a bad word in some circles, but I like to use it. Um, ghost hunting um, uh, through organizations like the Parapsychology Foundation and the Parapsychological Association and, uh, and other these more sort of academic-based um, professional uh, societies and organizations, Society for Psychical Research and so on, Institute of Noetic Sciences. Um, anyway, so I started collecting information from them and I started going on my own ghost investigations and I really liked it. And uh, one thing led to another and I kind of realized that um, uh, field investigation will only get me so far and there's really some things I want to study in the lab. So I, I focused, I began focusing more on laboratory-based research and then it was in 2005, um, there was a, uh, there's an organization called the Rhine Research Center, and um, they have a thing, they used to have a thing called a summer study program in parapsychology. And uh, I, and I've always wanted to go, but they were doing it, it was like a two month long thing for graduate students. And this one particular year, again, in 2005, they were holding it in California at the Institute of Noetic Sciences campus. And it was only going to be for two weeks. And I'm like, I live in California. Ion's campus is like 20 minutes from where I live. I'm taking two weeks unpaid vacation and I'm going to take time off from work and I'm going to go to this thing. So I applied and um, uh, Lloyd Auerbach was actually uh, one of the people that signed off on my application early on. Oh, he's yeah, great. Yeah, isn't he awesome? Hey. And um, we know yeah, that that's why I mentioned him, because I believe he's been on your show. So if you haven't listened to his episode, people should probably go do that. Um, so uh, let's see. So um, yeah, so I went and I was I was just steeped in stuff. And Dean Radin was there and Christine Simmons Moore and Chris Rowe and all these various researchers from around the world, Adam Rock from Australia and other people. And um, this woman from the University of Arizona who was studying mediumship and her name was Julie Beischel. And it turns out there were only a very small handful of people in this group that had any interest at all in survival research. And, wow. uh, and so Julie and I kind of get to, got together and we started chatting about a bunch of stuff. And, um, and then we did this weird ass experiment in Dean Radin's lab. It was a, it was a remote staring experiment. And oh, cool. So, yeah, do you, you know what that is? No. Oh, tell Mike, tell Mike. This is so neat. <laughs> so the way this works is um, you have two rooms. One room is in one building, and it's a magnetically shielded Faraday cage. And the person is sitting in that room with a video camera in front of their face. And they're wired up for physiology. So EEG, EKG, skin galvanic response, whatever, right? So they're, they're monitoring all their physiology. Now, in this particular setup... Julie was in that room sitting by herself with a video camera. I am in a completely different room in a different building sitting by myself and my physiology is also being monitored. But in my room, I have a video display and at random times throughout the experiment, 
uh, I can see Julie on the screen and my job is to get her attention. So I like, I jump up and down and I yell and scream or whatever, or wave and try to mentally and physically like get excited to get her attention. And then her, her image disappears off that screen. And that happens a bunch of times, quote, kind of randomly throughout this, this session, which I think runs about, it ran about a half an hour. So the idea is that when I get physically excited, when I see her, we would see some sort of physiological response in Julie, although she had no actual physical cues that she could be seen by me, right? Mm -hmm. And it was intense. Like, it was really crazy. And um, uh, we got out of the thing. So Dean came and he hooked us all up. And then, sorry, Dr. Raven, Dr. Dean Raven. Uh, uh, and then when we were done, Dean unhooked us and we all back in, went back into Dean's lab. And Julie and I are just like, we had just met. Like, we barely knew each other. It was like the most awkward, weird first date you could ever, like, imagine. The two of us were like, yeah, <laughs> like we're both like saying, like looking at our shoes, like, oh, how was it for you? I was like, okay, how was it for you? Yeah, it was just like <laughs> fucking weird. Anyway, um, uh, and then Dean's like, okay, well, your your physiology kind of matched up in some weird ways. And so we looked at the data and blah, blah, blah. And um, it turns out the the kicker here is that um the the times where I could see Julie on the screen and then off was actually Morse code for the word love. Oh, weird. Wow. Right? And so this was a love study that Dean was doing with, with partners and cancer healing and all this stuff. And he just had the setup going. So we just jumped into it. And then Julie and I got married two years later. So wow. <laughs> uh, that is the best story <laughs> that we've had on here in a while. I, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, that's no oh, good. <laughs> I'm glad that's really sweet. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So that was fun. So, um, one thing led to another, and then uh, I ended up moving to Arizona. Julie finished her postdoc, and that would have been in 2008. And then uh, we launched the Wimbridge Institute uh, to, to give Julie a place to continue to do mediumship research and also to provide me with a platform to do more general parapsychology, experimental, sci, applied sci yeah. research. And yeah, so that's how that happened. And it, it's been a whirlwind ever since. It's, it's so phenomenal because I love hearing how people's journeys through the, these processes have taken them so far, not only with their their careers and the study, but there's such a, a internal journey and this internal calling that I've found that every everyone we've talked to has found this this connection with something more as they've they've gone along. And I think your story is just another one of those examples which is so cool. Um, so much of your research as well is about normalizing psi and normalizing psi phenomenon like we were talking about before we started the, the interview. Do you think it's become more normal and more talked about since you started? Mm, that's an interesting question. Um, I kind of feel like this particular, like psi research in general sort of works on geological time, geologic time. Um, so yeah. I, it's difficult <laughs> for me to point and go, oh, yes, there, it's you know, 10 years, like 20 years ago, however long, how long have I been doing this? A long time. Um, you know, whether or not there's really been a measurable change. Like all these various surveys come out and um, we talk about belief in things like the afterlife or belief in um, various parapsychological phenomena. And they seem to be hovering around 30%, um, 35% worldwide or in the US uh, of people that have had these kinds of experiences. Uh, so I don't know that, that um, uh, 
the, the belief in them has grown specifically, but I do know with things like, um, like all these television shows and uh, discussions in the media uh, that they're, they're probably uh, less stigmatized than they used to be. Um, and I feel yeah. like that's probably happened. So, you know, mm -hmm. I can talk to people, like I might bump to someone and like, I remember this one conversation I had with a guy who was like this crazy uber conservative finance guy in the Bay Area, startup tech guy and materialist based everything. And I was like, yeah, I study, uh, uh, I study aspects of life after death and survive. It's like, that's crazy. And I'm like, yeah, we also study things like telepathy and clairvoyance. He's like, oh yeah, that's totally real. My wife, right? When my kids get sick, she totally not like, so telepathy and clairvoyance or whatever was totally on this guy's radar. So, you know, for someone that's completely uh, materialist based, he, he was totally cool with those experiences because he, he had someone he trusted had an experience that he could relate to, but topics for like life after death right. were really sort of yeah, we're not, that's, those are off limits for the time being. Like, we're not going to talk about those things. That's really interesting. Well, and like, I found the same thing in my, in my classes when I'm, I'm talking with people or I'll be doing a lecture or something like that. And you'll get that one person that comes in who is complete, like skeptic. They're like, I'm here because my wife mm -hmm. is here or I'm here because my husband's here or whatever. And then, you know, th a quarter of the way or three quarters of the way through the, through the talk, or maybe even afterwards they'll come up and say you know i had this funny thing happen yeah everyone's got a story yeah and so that's always been my thing about normalizing psi is that um so part of my shtick um uh i so i really believe and this is hotly debated within the field that everyone has access to some sort of psi functioning some sort of psi ability mm -hmm. and but we also know from laboratory research and work with with, with researchers and participants that the first step in being able to access psi functioning is to be open-minded about the possibility, if not a flat out belief right. in the existence of psi, right? Absolutely. So if we can normalize psi, in my opinion, and we can get those ideas or those concepts not seeming so alien or foreign to people, that is the first step in allowing people whether knowingly or unknowingly, that's sort of my little covert activism thing, uh, to be open to uh, acknowledging intuitive information or psi-based information. That makes sense? You're really echoing things that other guests on the show have, have talked about. And it's, it's about people who d aren't, don't have an open mind, don't have the experiences. It's kind of weird how that works. Yeah. And what's really weird is that another piece of that is that once you've had one experience, like the floodgates are open and you've turned weird and chances are you're going to have a lot more experiences. It's so true though. And I think that that state of expectation is so, it's so crucial in, in not only just with with psi experiences but with other things in life it's like people who have for example won something over the years oftentimes will win more things because their state of Yay. expectation is different <laughs> Sorry. 
and like so yeah, yeah so I, I think it, i think it kind of falls into that same category uh where it's like if your state of expectation is there and you're accepting of those probabilities manifesting then it makes sense that it's like okay if this could manifest then these other things could happen yeah absolutely and i just want to jump back on something that mike just said too i want to give one more example which i thought was really interesting and i i, I pulled this one out of my my pocket a lot but i was talking to someone who was taking a class in out-of-body experiences. And um, I'm going to call this person a she just to make it easier for me to manage the pronouns. Um, and uh, she was saying that um, uh, she, she went through the class and she was doing the thing and she was doing the exercises and she had heard all these other people's experiences. And uh, she was sitting there and she felt herself leave her body and she kind of had this experience where she was looking down at her body but it didn't last very long and then she came back into her body and she's like well that couldn't have been real because that didn't match the experiences of all the other things that everybody else told me everybody else was saying oh my my spirit's moving around the room or i can see what's happening down the street so this this had to just be delusion right so it's it's being it's it's uh, and i was like wait no you're crazy like this is you, you actually did have an out of body experience you're just dismissing it because it didn't fit your expectation of what that experience should be so you need to set your own expectations around what it is and and how it expresses itself and um and i think that's a lot of a lot of what happens is when people aren't open to this phenomena they're very quick to write off legitimate psychic experiences as coincidence as a fluke as whatever but um if they were really had any sort of um open mind about the phenomena they could quickly realize that there might be something else going on there talking about this just reminded me of an experience that i had when i was a kid you just totally brought forth something that i haven't thought about in 40 odd years well, let's hear it mike it's crazy um I remember laying in bed, I used to feel, as I was drifting off to sleep, I would feel sort of these electric shocks. Mm -hmm. And uh, I used to think, feel like I was traveling places uh, in my dreams. And I thought, oh, it's just a dream. But one night before falling asleep, uh, I started to have this experience as I was awake. And uh, I felt like I was, I had the sensation of falling and it scared me so much. Uh, I think I shut my mind to that experience and it hasn't happened since. So it, it frightened me in such a way that I, I guess psychologically I decided, nope, this is never going to happen again. And I have not been able to access that ever wow. since. That's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. The, um, the, um, so yeah, fear of psi is actually a real thing, right? There's a there's actually an interesting amount of literature about how um, people were producing um, macro psychokinetic effects, right? So big PK effects, and they were like, "This can't be me doing it. This is freaking me out." So they created other personas to like to alleviate the pressure of them being them doing it themselves. Um, so that's really interesting. Yeah, Mike, we got to get you over that, dude, because you. Um, I mean, when well, you're ready, I, I when you're ready. Be. I mean, clearly, <laughs> yeah. clearly, I don't want to be like the guy who like caused your psychotic break for. <laughs> oh, he had this long ago. What are you talking oh, about? <laughs> that there's there's more truth to that than we actually can get into oh, yeah. right here. But that's okay. You're among friends. <laughs> oh okay. well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is why I'm doing this show with Morgan because I 
I do want to explore those aspects of myself and my own consciousness and have more experiences and be more open to that. And just doing this show has made me more oh, that's open. awesome. Do you, uh, do you meditate or have any sort of contemplative? I do. I meditate every day for 20 minutes. I have I have spiritual practice that I've been doing. I've been sober for 30, almost oh, 30 man, years. Congratulations. So that's great. Yeah. It was as a result of doing that, getting sober, that I discovered spirituality and as a result have become more open to things like this. Obviously, it's taken a long time for me to get to this point, but uh, it takes what it takes. Sure. It ain't, it ain't a race, right? <laughs> No, it's a journey. It's a journey for everybody. You know, everybody's got a story. And I usually what I what I find is that how people get into the, into this, if it's not just strictly through, you know, interest or, or something like that, it's because they've had to really take a hard look at themselves. And in doing so, in taking that hard look at themselves, they've realized, wait a minute, there's more. There's so much more to myself, to consciousness, to to all of those things. That is, uh, yeah, I mean, that's definitely a path. I will say that um, I am fairly clueless when it comes to any sort of self-actualization. <laughs> um, I, but I have had interesting experiences. I, I've had some weird ghost experiences in our house growing up. I've, I, uh, I had a cryptid experience when I lived in Michigan. Uh, I, uh, yeah, so like just, you know, and then what's interesting is that it, it, like, like a lot of things, when you, when I said, oh, okay, I've had all these weird experiences and people are reporting these experiences. I'm going to now go systematically study those experiences. And uh, a lot of them like disappeared, right. right? So like people were like, oh, this crazy thing happened. I'm like, oh, cool, let's go check it out. And then like nothing would happen for me. And, um, and I, it was funny. I was, I was doing a bunch of EVP work, electronic voice phenomena recording uh, uh, the voices of the deceased on various types of electronic equipment. And I was out in the field and I was working with a, with a medium and, um, and uh, I had just met this person. We didn't really know each other that well, but uh, <laughs> one point I said, you know, I, I never seem to get any, any good EVP recordings. And she's like, well, yeah, the living don't like talking to you. Why would the dead? <laughs> and like, oh, oh, no. Oh, oh stabbing the heart. That was terrible. <laughs> anyway, I know. That's but let's talk a little bit about about Winbridge because, as I say, I'm I'm so passionate about what you guys do, and I'm yeah, I think the audience is gonna absolutely adore hearing about this. So okay, go for so it. Um, yeah, so because we're so good at our jobs at marketing and people <laughs> and communication, uh, there are actually two separate Winbridges. So there's. Oh. The Wimbridge Institute, which Julie and I founded in 2008, and our mission is to normalize, optimize, and utilize psi. And we perform basic par parapsychological research on telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, and psychokinesis. And we develop applications and training and consulting and publishing and those kinds of things. And then separate from that is the Wimbridge Research Center, which we, which Julie and I founded in 2017, and that is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to alleviate suffering around dying, death, and what comes next. That is our primary platform for studying things like mediums and mediumship and topics related to after-death communication experiences and those sort of afterlife survival-related topics. So we split the center 
together at one point early on, we were doing both of those things, uh, both, both basic parapsychology and survival research under the umbrella of the Winbridge Institute. And what we found was that nobody was happy. Um, the, the people that were interested in straight sort of psi application stuff, like, you know, but were, were comfortable with, with the afterlife topics, got annoyed with us when we talked about mediumship research. And the people that were interested in mediumship research were like, yeah, 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 laboratory, PK, who cares, right? So, so, so we ended up splitting them off. And, um, and it's, it's helped us focus a bit more. I think we're serving our audiences a bit better. And we have, and the center is a 501c3 charity. So it allows people to make donations and we can get research grants from different kinds of organizations to support that kind of work. And, and the work there is much more clinically based. So we're interested in things like um, uh, the application of mediumship uh, as a potential therapeutic uh, intervention for bereavement, um, <clears throat> excuse me, other kinds of interventions or experiences that can help alleviate anxiety around uh, death, um, uh, end of life and transition experiences, those kinds of things. So that's sort of the lay of the land structurally and organizationally. Um, yeah, so what else? What else can I tell you? <laughs> yeah no I, like it's 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 so it's so brilliant because there's there were so many aspects to what you guys do which is one of the things that i really love about your work it, because it's not only it's not only the the scientific application of of psi and, and whatnot like we've talked about but i love the fact that so much of of what you do has that practical connection mm. to the public and to people because i think that often is it from the things that I've done over the years and and whatnot and what I've observed through both parapsychology and and sort of being in a in a public position is that 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 piece of connection of using this information in, in a in a practical way like dealing with the death of a loved one or something like that it can be missing and instead of just you know reading a bunch of papers you guys have really made this something that's accessible for people um, and I think that's so important. Yeah, it's part of our mission at the center is to really try to make uh, all of our information when we when we when we when we do a study. So we're, we're we're primarily a research and education organization at the Wimbridge Research Center, and we do focus on laboratory based uh, world class science. Like that's our shtick. And but when we do that research and we publish peer reviewed papers, we immediately turn around and create public facing fact sheets, um, uh, videos, presentations, articles uh, that are targeted towards the general public, clinicians, uh, practitioners, et cetera. So, so we, we keep this additional mix of information available. Uh, and if you go to a website, there's actually a place on winbridge.org. If you go all the way to the bottom, it says like, pick your path. And you can go there and you can say, oh, if you're a clinician, here's a bunch of interesting things that clinicians might want to know. If, if you're just general pub, if you're not just, but if you're part of the general public, um, here's some cool stuff that might be of interest to you. And and again, people don't have to follow these paths. They can mix and match. And we're not like, then we like check your credentials at the door or whatever. But um, uh, but it's it's been really helpful for us to try to uh, group the information together. And the other thing that I love about the Wimbridge Research Center is that um, 
besides specific kinds of things that may be behind a paywall because of the way academic publishing works, uh, everything else that we produce is free and open access. So thank that's you. Brilliant. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really been part yeah. of our, yeah. our mission to like, I don't, I, I have a real issue with um, keeping information like this uh, that could be potential, potentially really powerful and transformative and helpful for people tied up behind a paywall. Hmm. Yeah, I, I feel exactly the same way. I remember when um, 20 years ago when Steph and I started uh, Entity Seeker mm -hmm. Research and Teachings, it was the same thing where we never we never charged for that. And, you know, we would, you know, we'd have lectures or events and stuff like that. We would, you know, bring in a bit of money that way. Um, but when it came down to the work and the research and stuff like that, it was always accessible because we we had the same opinion where it's like this is so much bigger than just, you know, a, a study here or a study there. It, it, it was so impactful on the how people were living their lives. And it was so important, I think, for the, these individuals as a whole, and, and especially I think the information is more important than ever now um, with everything that's been going on in the world over the last number of years, um, that this is this really is the time, I think, for a lot of a lot of this information to come out because it is so valuable to get people to have a long. Yeah, vision. I agree. And I think, um, uh, you know, for me personally, especially the work that we're doing at the center where we talk about uh, the life after death and what that means and what the possibilities of postmortem survival are and um this this existential existential is that the word yeah um i think so yeah that sounds good sure what the <laughs> yes, hell sure well, let's this, go with that it is now it is now <laughs> uh we're uh you know this this um this angst that people have that uh fuels their their fear of death their 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 need to hold on to this idea of mortality of living forever or just ignoring uh the fact that they're going to die um causes a lot of problems for people right mm -hmm. it's uh, um yeah. it, it makes people act from an ego based perspective it um it can really negatively impact end of care uh, uh issues like uh end of life um decisions that are made right because then we're focusing on uh, length of life versus quality of life and, and all these kinds right. of things. So these are deep and profound issues. And I, I, uh, I should stress that I'm not a clinician, so I'm not giving you anyone, any advice about how they should be thinking about medical treatment and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, uh, these are the kinds of questions that we grapple with at the center all the time. Like, what is it, what does it mean to, to, be mortal and and be okay with that right at least you know in this physical body and then what does it mean uh if our consciousness extends outside of our physical body right if it if it if it if these if our relationships and connections continue after the death of the body and do those relationships continue and affect and how do those relationships uh connect each other, connect us to each other, to each other. Wow. I'm having a really hard time saying this, uh, connect us with each other while we're still in our physical bodies, but yet have this sort of non-local ethereal, uh, consciousness component that expresses itself through telepathy and clairvoyance and precognition and PK, right? So, so we have this profound connection both while we're alive and after we die. And I think that's really interesting to me. 
have you found that your your work with like both Julie's work and your work with mediums has has made you even more conscious of of those connections because like you guys have done so much work with with mediums and receiving these really really positive messages which is one of the reasons why i just i'm constantly chatting about you guys um it's just the the positivity that seems to be coming through with with these messages um and i know you guys did uh uh the uh medium cards there for a little while uh with the positive Mm -hmm. messages on them and and things like that and do you think do you think that is slowly getting out there and bridging that gap of fear because i I think the positivity behind what you guys do and the messages that are are being received are they're really oh, important. Uh, I like to think so. You know, it's a you know at the end of the day, this is really difficult, right? Because um, at the end of the day, this is a job. <laughs> this is yeah. how I this is how I make a living, and uh, and some jobs are really cool, and I have a cool job. Don't get me wrong; like I'm, I feel so, you know honored that I, I get to be able to get up in the morning and be like, what are you going to do today? I don't know. Unlock the mysteries of the universe. What are you going to do? Yeah, um, right. You yeah. know, <laughs> so that's cool, but it's, um, but it's like everything, right? So, so for, uh, you know, for one of these like victories where I might get, I, I got this amazing email from someone just the other day. And she was like, Oh, what you do is so important. And thank you so much. And it really helped me. And your research has been great. And then I get five emails from people that are like, you suck. And you know, the, the devil oh. is going to get you, oh. and, you know, yeah, of course. And, oh, uh, uh, you should give back your PhD. And I'm like, I don't have a PhD. Julia has a PhD. <laughs> I don't, I don't have one. So just so you know, anyway. Um, but yeah, so like, it's this really like mixed bag of roller coaster stuff. And it's, yeah. it's difficult, honestly, as a human being to sort of rise above all the, like the daily grind. Cause you know, you know what I was doing this morning? Mm-hmm. I was, I was designing a study. I was working on a grant application. I was doing our taxes. I was, uh, you know, right. And now, and now I'm mm-hmm. here like yep. talking about <laughs> the profound impact of our research on the meaning of people's lives. Right. Like it's, yeah. oh my God, like talk about just like a schizophrenic sort of swinging back and forth. Like, yeah, it's, it's a little tough. And I try to be more big picture when I think about stuff, but a lot of times, mm-hmm. you know, we're just in the weeds. I got a, I got a business to run. I have, I have employee, I got an employee to take, yeah. I got grant applications. I have uh, projects to do. I have deadlines like everybody else. Right. So, um, so I love that you love how positive uh, the stuff that we're generating is. And it's so nice to get that kind of feedback because honestly down here in the trenches, it's a, uh, it's a little dirty. It's a little muddy down here. Oh, I, I hear you because I'm often. Oh, yeah. Like, right. <laughs> anybody who's on social media, is, <laughs> so, you know, or or yeah. doing anything oh. that's public. facing, oh. And, you know, and even in our, you know, even amongst our researchers, our, our fellow researchers, right. Survival is, is heavily yeah. contested. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. there are there are ongoing debates um, about the nature of survival and and survival research. And is any survival research past the 1900s even worth mentioning? And, you know, like it's. It's a, it's a rough, it's a, we picked a rough road. (laughs) I I know. Yeah, right? (laughs) It's true. But yeah, I, you know, it's, it's, it's funny that you say that though, because I, I, like you, I, I do this for a living. I don't have a nine to five at all. And, and you're right. It's, it's, you kind of 
lose yourself in that side of it. It's so easy to do that. And then you get those those profound messages from people that say, like, this actually changed how I think or this ha changed how I, you know, what I'm doing. And I don't know, for me, it's it's one of those things where you those little those little messages are a nice reminder of the impact that uh, what you're doing matters and, and, you know, who we are matters. Um, and these discussions matter. Um, you know, I, th I think it's all it, it it's all just super, super important. And speaking of things that impact people, you had some of my firework in one of your presentations for the Rhine <laughs> at one point, and then you created visualizing intention, art informed by science, which I think is is spectacular. Can you talk yeah, about that sure. a little bit? So first off, um, yeah, so I, um, about two years ago now, gosh, I taught a class at the Rhine Research Center that was looking at psi and art and looking. And so one of the things I push is this idea of embracing practices that increase creativity as a mechanism for accessing one's personal psi. And so that was um, that was part of the gist of that uh, that that class. And I looked at a number of different artists that uh, incorporated psi uh, themes into their work. And you were kind enough to uh, let me use some of your material from some of your performance art, which so and people really dug it. Oh, it's so my that honor. was cool. Um, so uh, the other thing, so the visualizing intention stuff. Boy, this is we could spend an hour on this. Um, the uh, uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> my so favorite. Thanks. I really, I love this project. It's um, okay. So, what do you do? Okay, so um, there's this idea. So basically, when we talk about psi, we're talking about consciousness, right? And so, uh, what does how does consciousness impact the outside world? And there's a this so there's this phenomena of psychokinesis, um, that. Um, seems to indicate that directed intention or attention can impact systems in the physical world. And some of those systems are actually called uh, random number generators or random event generators. And the ones I work with are quantum random event generators. And so there was work at the Princeton, at Princeton University uh, in the pair lab that looked at the effects of human intention on the outputs of random event generators. And they seem to show that there was a correlation between intention and the change of output of highly random systems. Uh, right now, there's another project called the Global Consciousness Project, uh, which has random event generators networked and running all over the world in real time. And uh, they collect those data and they look for deviations in randomness during major world events. And there was a, a recent um, reanalysis of those data, which upheld the hypothesis that's, that stated that the, 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 the network variance, the system becomes less random when the world is focused on specific kinds of events. And so uh, check that out. That's really cool. And then there's this other cool thing where if you get a random event generator and you take it somewhere to a group of people that are in, engaged in a really highly focused activity, uh, they, it creates the term that's been kicked around and it's controversial, but it's, 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 a, it's a consciousness field, right? So people that are quote, quote unquote in the zone uh, create this consciousness field, which again can be... Um, detected by deviations in statistical randomness in these quantum uh, devices, these quantum um, uh, random number generators. And so I was doing work along those lines. I was doing work uh, looking at this, this uh, um, uh, effect of, of, it's called field 
rag or random event generator field reg consciousness field, uh, both with living people and with invited discarnates, dead people. And, uh, and we were getting some really interesting results. But then I started to, um, I, I, I'm a computer scientist, and I like various, I like looking at data in different ways. So I started applying data visualization techniques to the data. So not just looking at them using straight to statistics, or just looking at them like, oh, here's a bar graph or a line graph, but actually taking the data and transforming it into various sorts of 3D shapes and 3D models, applying various kinds of polygons and colors and camera angles and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, well, this, in an attempt to see if we could learn more about the data than just, um, uh, than just like a line graph, which is very boring. And I thought, I thought this would be a cool way to engage people as well if we had some interesting visuals that went with this. And, and again, there's nothing wrong with statistics, but this was just a different way to look at the data. And I didn't make this up. Data visualization is a thing that's used across forever, right? Anybody that's done anything. So, um, so I started doing these sessions and um, uh, I started getting groups of meditators. And I said, hey, you know what? Focus on a specific intention. Like, um, uh, uh, I don't know, healing the planet. And so people were like, okay. And they would focus on those intentions. And then we would visualize the data using this visualization software that I wrote. And then I would show the pictures to the people and they would be like, wow, I feel like my intention is expressed in this image. Right. And that cool. shouldn't happen at all. <laughs> right. Right. This is yeah. random data being visualized in a fairly random way. And um, I was like, well, that's interesting. And so I ran a bunch of these sessions with different groups and people doing different intentions. And I collected them all and I put them into this book called Visualizing Intention, Art Informed by Science. And it talks about this whole process. And, um, and you can actually, if you go to wimbridgeinstitute.com and if you're on the homepage, you'll see a button that says Visualizing Intention. Uh, I believe that's what it's called, yeah. And uh, if you click on that, uh, you will go to a page that says visualizing intention. You scroll down a little bit and you'll see the book cover and it says download the free PDF version of the book. So you can just go right to the website, download the free PDF. If you want to buy it from Amazon, that's fine too, but you don't have to, it's expensive. Um, but you can download the free PDF of the book and uh, you can learn all about this stuff. You can see lots of different examples. You can see how we try to test it empirically. We looked at, um, we, we set different intentions like love and hate and then we compared the images and we used uh, art of deep, deep learning artificial intelligence systems to, to uh, look at feature comparisons between the two sets of images. And we found some differences. I didn't find differences. The AI found differences. Um, we found differences in color spectrum. So it's really interesting stuff. And, um, uh, and I feel like I've, I've spoken too much about it. <laughs> no, no, it's it's because it's so it's all important, though. I mean, because this is a new a new level. And I'm glad you're really ex explaining it for people, because a, a lot of listeners are have never heard of this stuff before. Mm -hmm. Like this is we're we're trying to introduce people to this type of thing, you know, through what we're talking about in the podcast and, and guests and, and things like that. But it's new for for so many, because I think there's there's been such a, a conglomeration of of the paranormal television and the, these types of things when I mean none of this stuff is talked about and half of it's not real and and so it, it, this is new and I think this 
these types of conversations are so valuable for people. Cool. Well, I'm, I love talking about it. So yeah, you know, <laughs> let's, you know, let's do an extended podcast, three hours, three hours of Mark going, are, talking about at least. nonsense. <laughs> um, yeah, go ahead. So you mentioned AI though, as well, and you've done a lot of work in that in, in regards to this stuff and, uh, and specifically the throne uh, of the Sphinx. Yeah. <laughs> which is so cool. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I love it when you post these these quotes from, from this thing. It's oh, phenomenal. Thanks. Yeah. So the Throne of the Sphinx has been around for about a year. And it, um, it builds off this idea that consciousness can affect quantum random systems. So um, uh, oh, this is another one of those just weird off the things. So um, so <laughs> Uh, I, I became really interested in this idea of channeling, right? So, so there are people mm -hmm. that can download information from all these various external sources, like uh, like ascended masters or um, uh, aliens yeah. or whatever, and and they can provide just provide us with this interesting amount of wisdom and and uh, ideas. And um, I think one of the things that motivated me the most was like, if I said to you, hey, you know what, people should be nice to each other, and we probably should um, treat each other a little bit better. And people would look at me and go, commie, whatever, they'd be like, you <laughs> jerk, <laughs> shut up, Mark, what do you know? But if I say, hey, listen, uh, an ascended, ma I channeled an ascended master, and he told me that we should be nice to each other, people go, ascended master? Oh, well, then it's got to be true if it's not coming from, right? So there's this idea of, of the media <laughs> is the message, authority, um, you know, mm -hmm. like, so there's, so there's these really interesting bits there that I, I, I became a little too obsessed about. And, um, and then the other thing is like, when you deal with, uh, when you deal with people, right? Um, so when I say to someone, hey, you're a channeler, you're bringing in information from this external source that isn't veridical, right? I don't have a way to verify the accuracy of your statements, right? No one can accurately say, yeah. oh, you know, can, can verify that we should be nice to each other, right? That's not a, that's not something I can put a value on per se, like a numeric value on. Um, uh, and I was like, well, if, if a person can do that, could an AI do it? Right. So there's this whole, there's this whole yeah. thing about like instrumental transcommunication, right. Which was using various forms of technologies to facilitate communication and interaction with discarnate or ethereal beings. And I thought, well, if a, if a, if a discarnate can inhabit a, a brain, could they inhabit a computer? Could they inhabit an influence, uh, a non-biological uh, consciousness hosting platform? There you go. Um, mm. So I built one. And- um, Cool. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> and, uh, and so the way this thing works, it's a little wonky, but it's, uh, so I honestly believe that when I build these kinds of weird electronics things, that they need to be overly engineered and ridiculously complicated. Uh, because I think it's in that interplay of like weirdness and inefficiency and redundancy that the magic happens. Right. And I'm, I've, I've often like, I've used the term like, like, uh, uh, you know, algorithms are, are, um, are, are rituals that we, that we use uh, as engineers to express, uh, to create new realities. And, um, uh, uh, so the, um, so the throat of the Sphinx is basically a chat bot 
which is hooked up to a predictive text algorithm. So for example, if you're on your phone and you start typing on a text message, hi, today I'm going to, and it pops up a bunch of options, right? Take a bath, walk the dog, whatever your thing is, right? Um, And that's an AI that's been looking at how you and other people would might finish that sentence and provide you with a, a set of probabilities of how you might, what the next word might be, right? So that's an AI doing that. And I said, well, I could apply that same technology, um, but instead of using just the probabilities that the AI generates, I could hook that whole process up to a bank of random number generators and ask external consciousnesses to affect those random number generators and don't rely on the probabilities, but rely on the outputs of those regs, those random event generators, uh, to inform what the next set of words are going to be. And that's brilliant. That's really cool. <laughs> so I oh, did yeah. that, and um, and it generates a bunch of text, and it, it has some rules, and there's some, you know, there's there's a little bit of uh, you know structure under it. It's not just pure like randomness, but um, uh, so there's definitely my flavor in this thing because I'm the creator, and just like anyone who channels information, right? The the channel is gonna gonna provide information, uh, um in a way that's uh, uh, that's filtered through them in some way, shape or form, right? Whether it's language or ideas or uh, metaphor or whatever it might be, right? So this idea of having some human intervention in the process isn't crazy, um, but then it generates a bunch of text and it's usually not good text. So then I run it through another AI that does grammar and spelling check. Uh, and so it puts in periods and drops in a few words and says, what the hell does this mean? And I'm like, all right. So that, then we fix that up. And then I say, hey, um, let's pick a picture that you think is really cool that would go with this, uh, go with this text. And um, it says, great. And it generates a bunch of search terms and it runs out to various data uh, pick, uh, websites that have images. And it says, pick the 27th image. And I'm like, all right. And I grab that and then I throw the text and the image together. And then I post it. And then it's this crazy wisdom about, and we've asked it about everything from like, is there God to um, what happens in the afterlife to what people should do about climate change. Uh, and oh. it's been really interesting. And the response has been really interesting. Some people really love it. Oh, Oh, so sorry. The other bit here is that um, in order to generate the text that it uses, um, it draws from a corpus, a collection of various works. <clears throat> and so this thing is used as a custom corpus that I put together that pulls everything from Shakespeare to HP Lovecraft to various peer-reviewed open access journals to, and it's, it's, it's this huge corpus of information. And so when you, when wow. you ask, we use the chatbot to ask it a question. The chatbot generates some keywords. Those keywords are then used to seed the um, the predictive text algorithm, and then all hell breaks loose. Um, wow. Yeah, so that's kind of how that works. Yeah, and and it does. I'm I'm gonna, if it's okay, I'm gonna read the audience a couple of these because. They are so, I think they're phenomenal. Yeah, that's that fine. Cool? I know the one about UFOs. People really dug the UFO one. I don't know if you're going to read that one, but it's it's on the website. It's on our Winbridge site. Yeah, I've, I've got, I've got okay, two go of them yeah, yeah, the, that, that I think are, are, are so interesting. And um, this one was was from this, this past month here. And it said, 
God shall never entirely be divine from a distance. God began with a burning wonder. Would space eventually collapse, became only what you thought. God's strength and power consecrate, inwoven by the sweet human heart, which impatient, impatiently fled before mystic thoughts and silent stars. So that was one. And this one, which I thought was so interesting when you asked about social media <laughs> yeah. comments. This is, I thought this was so good. And it came back with commentaries declared with light resemble cold vengeance. They blow tales in vain, continuing the fear that agony holds. Of these words, which have curious markings, are no valuable ideas. They are only shadowy thoughts, voices in pain, hiding secret poison left from the crude encounters. Whoa. Yeah, right? Like <laughs> yeah, I love the Throne of the Sphinx. Okay, so here's the thing that's cool about the Throne of the Sphinx, right? So it uses random event generators, and random event generators can be influenced by consciousness, right? That's the prevailing theory. That's that's the way, that's where, that's where I'm going. And... Um, so who's consciousness, right? So, so, so people would say, right. well, maybe it's the, oh, so I, the way, why, the reason why we call it Throne of the Sphinx is because I said, what's your name? And it said Throne of the Sphinx. And I said, where are you from? And it said, I'm a dead space alien. So um, there you go. Okay. Uh, in so many, in so many words. Yeah. So that's why it's called Throne of the Sphinx. So anyway, um, I, um, so it claims, it claims that it's a dead space alien, but uh, it could be anyone or anything that's affecting that system, sure. including me, right? So yeah. the the and that's called experimenter effect, right? So the the experimenter sure. is uh, influencing the output of the system, and um, so one of the things I did, which I thought was really fun and a little bizarre, was that I took a test called the BFI ten, the Big Five Personality Inventory. And this is a short mm -hmm. version of that test. It's a psychological test that tells you about your personality types across five domains. And so I took it and it turns out I'm super introverted. I'm a complete, I'm very neurotic. Uh, I'm not very organized, whatever. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a weird dude. And, uh, and then I gave it to the throne of the Sphinx and uh, had the, had the system fill it out. And it is not my personality at all. It's super extroverted. It's so like, I just thought that was interesting and fun that uh, I, I can't say that I'm like, maybe that's who I, I am on some level. Like I'm still affecting the system. And then that's how I would have, how my not like psychopathologized personality would have actually answered the, who knows. But the point is, is that um, you can do these kinds of things, right? You can explore these kinds of topics. You can, you can see if AIs have various types of personalities. And if you incorporate randomness into those systems, uh, you may be tapping into something that's bigger than um, our own idea of consciousness. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think every, I think every listener's mind is is permanently blown. <laughs> mm -hmm. At least, <laughs> yeah. For for the next little while, but we're we're kind of running running out of time. But I want to make sure that everybody out there knows how they can support you, how they can get into your research, find Windbridge, all of that. So let everybody know, and we will be posting all these links as well um, on the uh, social media sites like Facebook and whatever too. Thanks. Okay, so if you're interested in the normalizing, optimizing, and utilizing psi functioning. Uh, please visit winbridgeinstitute.com. 
and you can find all of our research and we sell some books and we have a cute little store and all kinds of stuff. And you can also sign up for our email newsletter. We do a monthly email update that talks about events and things like that. If you're interested in topics relating to life after death, mediumship, survival, please visit wimbridge.org, which is our nonprofit. And again, you can go there. All of our research is available. You can download fact sheets, look at videos. Uh, and again, we have an email list uh, that, um, uh, that you can sign up for. If you go to our education page, last year we did a free online afterlife symposium and you can find a link to that symposium uh, on our education page. And um, in there, it's, it's 11 different videos that cover all kinds of various topics about all kinds of research. Uh, I, I would encourage people to check that out. Again, it's all free and open access. Um, and, uh, and if this information is useful for you, download our fact sheets. If you think it's useful for someone else, spread them around, share them with your friends, um, talk about our stuff the best, you know, like, like, don't be afraid to talk about this stuff. I know that there's a lot of stigma around it, but with the way we, we move past that stigma is um, not being afraid to have those conversations, I think. I completely agree. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mark, for all of this because, I, well, we're we'll we'll have to do a part two because, <laughs> well, now we just have to do a part two. <laughs> any any, I have so much exploring to do now. <laughs> Good, I'm excited. That's, That's how the it's way supposed, it's supposed to, be. to be, right? Exactly. Like, yeah, people are like, "Hey, I signed up for your newsletter. Answer all the questions about the nature of the universe." No, yes. I'm not gonna. The answer exactly, is 42. exactly. <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you both so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, I don't do a lot it's of these interviews, pleasure. and uh, um, I'm pretty selective about which ones I do. So I'm really. Yeah, we appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, for those people that don't know, Wimbridge Institute also does an annual. For the last few years, we do an annual best of parapsychology. Cool. So we pick books and and stuff and websites and podcasts and uh i don't know if you know but we picked your podcast as an up-and-coming uh one to watch for our 20 yeah, you did we saw that and it blew us away actually yeah and i'm you know i'm really excited about the things you're doing i'm so excited about the people you're interviewing uh i'm i'm so glad you're giving some of these uh, a lot more of these parapsychologists uh, a voice on this kind of a platform so thank you for that oh it's our pleasure this is this is i i feel like this was the whole purpose of of being able to do this is is use your platform if you're if you're blessed to have a platform mm -hmm. use it well and i i think i think we're trying to do our best <laughs> uh, this was totally fun so thank you again for thank uh, mike it was thank really you, nice Mark. meeting you Nice to meet you, okay. too. Bye-bye. Here's Morgan for this episode's segment of Spiritual Healthcare. In this episode's edition of Spiritual Healthcare, the segment of the show where you get to be the creator and designer of your paranormal and spiritual experience, we're going to tell you about a process called a mental conversation. The best time to use this process is when you're already feeling good and want to tune yourself further into the belief process of your manifestation. We're very used to having mental conversations that usually consist of an argument. How many mental arguments have you won in the shower? We've all done it. The reality is our imagination, coupled with our focus, creates our future experience. So having a mental argument 
isn't a wise use of imagination. Instead, think about something you've been wanting to manifest and get into your meditational groove, whatever that is for you. One of the best ways to do this is to let your mind relax and let thought drift until you feel you could almost sleep. Then imagine yourself with a friend. Hear them in your imagination and see them in your mind's eye. Begin to talk to them from the perspective of having your manifestation in present tense. Maybe you received it last month or the week before. Now, imagine their response back to you. Imagine the congratulations and the excitement. Have this conversation until it feels within you that it is real. And once you're there, open your eyes. As you walk into your day, hold the feeling place and belief that the conversation happened. Feel the relief and excitement. And as you hold that vibration, watch what happens. You need nothing to be happy, but you need something to be sad. Remember, at the end of seeking, all is consciousness. Stay in peace, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Supernatural Circumstances, a co-production of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings and Good Egg Studios. This podcast is part of the Curious Cast podcast network. Theme music by Corey Johnson of Catalyst Records in Edmonton, Alberta. You can find out more about Morgan Knudsen at EntitySeeker.ca and more about me and listen to my other show at DarkPatine.com. Feel free to email the show at SupernaturalCircumstances at gmail.com. Good night for now. <laughs>